From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hi, and welcome to Out of Office. My name is Nate Langson. I'm an editor on Bloomberg's technology news team here in London, and I'm in for Malika on this episode, in which I spend half an hour or so with Drew Houston, the co-founder and chief executive officer of Dropbox. Now, the company is best known as creating a service that let customers easily sync files between computers. At least, that's how it started 15 years ago. Today, it's a publicly traded company worth more than $8 billion, with consumers and enterprise clients paying for cloud storage in quantities that makes it one of the biggest competitors to Google Drive or Microsoft OneDrive, Apple's iCloud, Box, many more besides. And in fact, during our conversation, Drew recalls the time the late Steve Jobs called him into Apple's Cupertino headquarters to discuss the business. He actually he started out very graciously. He's like, you know, you guys have built a great product. He called it product initially. But I'm like, all right, Steve called our product great. Check. Bucket list. Drew also talks about some of the early lessons he had to learn after founding Dropbox a little after dropping out of his studies. Our investors asked for our wiring instructions. I, I don't know what... I don't know how to do that. Like I've, I've seen James Bond movies, but like we all, we just have like a little checking account that we opened in the mall back in Boston, and we're supposed to get a million dollars wired to us. And it'd be quite embarrassing to kick off our relationship by them saying yes to the investment and us not being able to figure out how to get the money in the bank. Drew's also passionate about creating a flexible workforce post-COVID. And despite the opposite approach being taken by a number of technology companies this year, he is confident that letting people work from wherever they want to is the right way to go. You know what, we think that about 90, the primary work orientation for us is gonna be remote about 90% of the time. We'll, the other 10% will do in person and be more kind of these offsites or and we, we totally redesigned the office. We basically ripped out all the individual workspaces. There's much more to hear in here, and that includes talks of guitars and Drew's cover band, and maybe lessons from a Prussian general. Here's my full conversation with Drew Houston. Drew, welcome to Out of Office. Pleasure to have you here in London. Oh, great to be here. Um, I, as I understand it, it's been about four years or so since you've since you've been here. That's right. So what, why why now? What do we do? Well, it's wonderful that the world has reopened. Um, so it's great to be able to see uh, our teams here in person and, and customers. But um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a new world. Yeah, totally. Well, um, obviously, you've been at the helm of Dropbox for a decade and a half at this point, um, during which we've seen some pretty unpredictable change, both in terms of technology, uh, and particularly, I think, the human relationship with technology and internet services uh, in general. And in a little bit, I'm going to take you back to maybe five 
moments in the the Dropbox timeline, if you like, um, and just ask you to reflect a little bit on on what they meant to you at the time, but also I think more importantly, <clears throat> excuse me, how it affected the way you uh, work and, and and think today. Um, so, um, I mean, firstly, the um, we, we've talked about being back in Britain for the first time in so many years, but the pandemic happened during that period. It's very easy to talk about the pandemic because everyone has an opinion on it. But being a services company, um, how did that impact you? What's the your sort of lasting memory of how it changed the business? Well, it was a uh, pretty strange and unexpected, and then certainly for a lot of people, a traumatic experience. And I just remember sitting in our office in San Francisco in one of these like mission control type rooms, which I had never been in before. And I'm sending out the email to the company being like, hey, stay home. I, I felt like a school principal announcing a snow day or something. Like, we'll be back soon, you know. And then um, it was pretty clear that a lot a lot was going to be different. Um, but, uh, yes, yeah, it, it was a surreal experience from being in an office with thousands of people around to then being at home, you know, running a company and and all those people are just but doing all that from you know little apps on your screen i mean for dropbox in particular it's it must have been quite interesting because by design your product almost thrives the more remote people are in a, in a sense you know if everyone was in this exactly the same room using exactly the same machines then there wouldn't necessarily be as much of a need so did it change your view on where the business should go or was it more reaffirming that you were on the right track? A little of both. I mean, to your point, people have been using Dropbox to work more flexibly since the beginning. Um, that said, for a lot of our customers, uh, it was a big shift. And, and, and some of our newer customers, I remember talking to a creative services uh, company in Australia. And they're like, well, we went from working in three different offices where they had all these servers on-premise still. And then they're like, then the lockdown happened. We had to move to Dropbox. And so we went from working in these different sites to working out of Dropbox. And so that metaphor of Dropbox being a place where you're working um, was something we had heard from our customers in the past and some, something we, um, or that, that that had influenced our thinking for a while, but then it become it became much more literal after, after the pandemic. And then um, when you think about the nature of work. I mean, pandemic really took us through this one-way door of of uh, working in offices to working in screens. And in a lot of ways, that was a transition that was already happening, but COVID pulled it forward in a much more dramatic and abrupt way. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's interesting to think of it as a, almost a one-way street. We've you know, without going into into specifics, there have been a lot of talk about, you know, companies that say, no, you must be in the office for dozens of hours a week or at least three days a week or, or whatever it is. Um, I mean, you seem to have stuck pretty steadfast to say like, no, like remote is good. So who's right? Well, I mean, it was clear from day one of, of lockdown um, that this works a lot better than we might have thought. Um, and it's not perfect, but there are a lot of obvious benefits, not commuting, being able to control your schedule more, being able to live anywhere. Um, and our view was once folks had had these benefits and this flexibility, they were not going to want to give it back. Right. Um, that said, there was a lot of, uh, the remote experience is not perfect. There's a lot of challenges with it. It's not a great way to build human connection and relationships. Um, so, and, and then there was such a, 
the largest change to the nature of work in our lifetimes. Um, and then it, it was so disruptive and, all, and, and harmful in all the ways that the pandemic was terrible. But uh, we were trying to find a silver lining. Like, okay, well, the floorboards have been ripped up. We don't have to put them back down exactly the way they were before. Um, how do we get the best of both worlds here? How do we get the best of the remote experience and all the flexibility it offers while also preserving uh, the in-person experience? Because we don't believe there's a substitute for that either. Mm -hmm. There's no, we're not remote only, we're virtual first. We have this virtual first working model, but we're not remote only. Um, so how do we build teams and culture and relationships? Um, can you get both? And, and so we really were fundamentally rethinking our operating model. And then what we wanted to avoid was what, we saw as potentially the, the worst of both worlds or kind of the default hybrid compromise of like come to work two, three, four days a week. Um, where the problem is you know, people are gonna be commuting longer distances to half empty offices. And then I think what they're finding now is like to be back on Zoom because someone isn't there and you know, but you don't have your snacks or your dog, right? Yeah. So there's, and especially with these open plan offices or you don't have enough conference rooms. So there's just a lot of challenges with the default way uh, or, or, or there are a lot of challenges you could design around if, if you thought about them. Um, so we're very uh, we're, we're very happy with how virtual first has gone on now that we're on the other side. Ninety uh, percent of our job applicants cite our virtual first model as a big reason why they join. Uh, our we measure scores around productivity and work life balance and engagement and our, our scores there in, in virtual first are some of the highest of any question. Um, I think it's also true that there will be multiple models. I don't think it'll just be one way of working, and, and certainly different people have different preferences. But um, and there's parts of the experience. I think we're all trying to figure out how to tune up. Like, how do you give you know earlier career people uh, more of that like social or mentorship opportunity, or you know what happens to the, the proverbial water cooler conversation? Um, I think these are things that are going to take different forms in the future, or could be gaps in the experience. Um, but we're really happy with the decision. It's been really been working well for us. Is there anything in particular that you have been able to do, or that you you plan on doing that that helps maintain that that culture that you that you mentioned? I mean, you know, Bloomberg has a has a good culture of you know for people who are coming in. I mean, just on the way down, we seem to be giving away tree saplings um, <laughs> for employees to go and plant, which is very nice. But I doubt Mike's going to post me a tree. So like coming in, there's a benefit to that. That's actually quite difficult to replicate remotely. Um, is there anything that you've you've tried on that front that's been successful? Well, I think you, every manager, every company has to be a lot more intentional about some of these decisions that you didn't have to think about before. So, you know, why why bring people into work in the first place, right? Um, and I think we have in our now that things have reopened, we bring people together for offsites and really kind of concentrated doses of of relationship building and often this will be multiple days and i think on the flip side i think a lot of companies are getting into trouble when they're careless about mm -hmm. how they're um about what they're asking their employees to do like if you're commuting an hour and a half to be at an hour you know stand-up meeting that could have happened over zoom uh, you know sitting in traffic and in your office like well we'll give you a cookie <laughs> you know try to get you come back it's uh you know I think if you think about your employees as resources to be controlled, then yeah, you can demand that they come back to the offices and stuff. But if you think of them as like smart people who have preferences, um, I think you got to take these things into account. 
And and has the nature of an away day or days in this case, is that, has the format of those changed at all or has it stayed similar to maybe what you would have done five years ago? It's very different. Um, I mean, actually, one thing we found during the pandemic was, I mean, we, we, we had concerns like, like anyone else that, oh, you know, are, are people going to be productive remotely or like what if people can't see each other working? Um, but if anything, uh, we found that people were maybe working more and having more meetings than than in than before the pandemic, and we're certainly more fatigued. Uh, so we had real concerns about um, the sustainability of work in a in a remote or distributed environment. Um, so and because we saw that, well, you know, if you totally remove the boundaries between home and work, like in a very literal way, the way the pandemic did, um, then there's a chance for then work can kind of spill over into every waking moment of your life, which uh, isn't actually productive or fulfilling. Um, so it's not good for the employee. It's also not good for the company. So we've done things like really think about um, the work week. And uh, one example is we have core collaboration hours. To, we ask everyone to keep the routine meetings within a four-hour window during the day so that you're not having everything kind of sprawl uh, or you're not having all your meetings sprawl throughout the day and you have time to focus and, and you can turn off. So I think there are new, new, uh, new challenges and new solutions uh, to those challenges uh, now that things are reopening. I've heard a lot of conversations over the last 16, 17 years that I've been covering technology and about the future of work. And I was thinking on the train in today that I didn't once recall anyone mentioning something like a global pandemic. I didn't, I don't recall people talking about a gig economy impacting uh the the restaurant business say like they're sort of opposites there was, there was no need to put them together obviously that has all happened and so how do you I mean how do you plan for ten years from now <laughs> for, you know knowing that these sorts of things happen whether we predict them or not and more often or not we don't predict them yeah I think it's less about you know throwing a dart a mile away <laughs> accurately and more just being able to uh, think from first principles where you can, but be uh, able to adapt. Um, and so we, we thought a lot about like, or well, what, what decisions do we need to make now that you can't reverse? Um, and then what can we kind of iterate on? And, and for us, that meant thinking like, well, you know, people really want to know, can they live in the same place or can they buy the house uh, that they've been looking at? Uh, are they going to have to come back to work or can they... Uh, are they going to have, or are they gonna physically come back to the office or will they have flexibility? And so we're like, well, you know, what? we think that about 90, the primary work orientation for us is going to be remote about 90% of the time. We'll, the other 10% we'll do in person and be more kind of these offsites or, and we, and we totally redesigned the office. We basically ripped out all the individual workspaces and turned our offices into these convening and collaborative spaces that we call studios. Um, and it also meant we reduced our physical footprint by like 80%. Um, so we're like, we, we will make those decisions kind of top down and centrally, and you can't really reverse those. But on a lot of the other things, um, you know, what exactly do we want people to do in the studios? Or, or what, do they, what do people want from physical space? Or how do we, you know, how, how much time should people spend together? Those are things where we want to, there's going to be a lot of experiments being run naturally, right? In, in our company and in, in every company, I think we're, we're learning a lot about what works and what doesn't work. Um, but I think that flexibility and adaptability um, is really important. And then, you know, I, I really enjoy learning about the history of work um, and 
you know, the way we work today is, if you're working remotely, it probably looks pretty strange to your parents. And then the way your parents worked might have looked pretty strange to their grandparents. Um, the point being that the work, the nature of work is always shifting. And so when you look at some of the past shifts and you know, think about how the five-day work week was sort of descended from you know, an industrial culture and factory work, and a lot of our mindsets came from that, um, then that can give you, seeing that evolution or in a bigger perspective can give you some hints about what might work or not work in the future. Mm. Well, I'm going to come back to some more contemporary questions um, in a little bit. I want to take you back to 2007, which uh, I can't believe is 15 years ago. But <laughs> there we are. That is the world we live in. 2007 was... Um, was sixty was fifteen years ago. Um, your launch, you know, getting off the ground. You were fresh out of studying. Um, I know this because I looked up your age, and you and I are about the same age. And so I was thinking about what I was doing in two thousand seven. It wasn't anywhere near as cool as setting up Dropbox. Dropbox. So perhaps you could sort of give me a sense of how that 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 first year was. You know, it did it. Looking back on it today, do you think it went as you expected it to go at the time? Um, I know we're going back quite a bit, but sure. what stands out? Well, it was funny because I didn't really think of it as of Dropbox as this thing called Dropbox. I was more just like, I had started, actually started another company doing online test prep. Of all yeah, things. the uh, SAT. Yeah. SAT prep, yeah. Yep. So a company called Accolade, little bootstrap startup to um, basically take conventional test prep and move it online, which now is very common, but that was... Um, but we we saw an opportunity there. But but the uh, what I so I was working on that company. I was also working during the day as an engineer at a, a different startup. And then I would always have these like little side projects. And Dropbox was just one of many side projects. Um, but my first, I mean, Dropbox was really born because I was I had I was on this bus ride from Boston to New York, and I opened up my laptop, and I realized that my thumb drive was sitting in my computer at home. Mm. Hey, just a quick question. What laptop did you use? I think that was like a ThinkPad, you know, right. like something back in the day. Um, and uh, and I was like, oh, you know, oh, no, I was supposed to be getting all this stuff done for my my company, and now I can't get anything done. And this was you know, 2006, actually, about mm -hmm. almost, six, almost exactly 16 years ago. Um, and I'm like, now I can't get anything done, and this keeps happening, and I'm so frustrated, um, and I just never want to have this problem again. So I started writing some code. Uh, that turned out to be the seed for Dropbox, but I didn't. I had no thought of what it could be yet. And then, um, but pretty quickly, I'd, I had a bunch of other friends that were entrepreneurs and had migrated from Boston to Silicon Valley and were on their their entrepreneurial journeys um, and got investment from Y Combinator and things like that. So we kind of had that whirlwind. It was, I started working on the early version of Dropbox. I wanted to get into Y Combinator. Uh, I had some trouble there because I didn't have a co-founder, but then I met one of my classmates at MIT, and we teamed up together. And he dropped out of school, and we're and you know flying uh, back and forth and talking to investors. So that first year was crazy. It was just a lot, um, just going from an idea to then finding ourselves in California and in you know investment offices in Menlo Park and trying to figure out how to cash 
checks from VCs you know, <laughs> or get the wiring instructions right. So it was uh Did you have to take any any advice on or ask any questions that at the time you're like, I can't believe I need to ask someone how to do this? Yeah, I was like, well, how, how, do, how does like our investors ask for our wiring instructions? I, I don't know. What, I don't know how to do that. Like I've, I've seen James Bond movies, but like we all we just have like a little checking account that we opened in the mall back in Boston and we're supposed to get a million dollars wired to us. <laughs> And it'd be quite embarrassing to kick off our relationship by them saying yes to the investment and us not being able to figure out how to get the money in the bank. That would not be good. So that was kind of, we had to go down to the Bank of America and North Beach and San Francisco and sit down and hand over our debit card. And I was asking like, is, is there a limit to how much bank accounts can hold? And she's like, like pulling up our account and had $60 in it. And I'm like, can, can I hold a million dollars? And she's like, yeah. Um, and, you know, we're in, like, hoodies and shorts and, like, looked a little suspicious, but uh, we were able to get the numbers we needed and left. But just, yeah, there's a lot of parts of starting a company where there's not really a playbook and you just kind of have to figure it out as you go along. Yeah, I guess that's one of the benefits of, a, of something like Y Combinator is that there's a lot of mentorship and a lot of people you can ask what to you at the time might seem like dumb questions or naive questions, whatever, but someone's got to ask them at the first time. Yeah. You know? um, yeah, Y Combinator was like going to school again. And uh, in a lot of ways, I mean, just uh, just the rate of learning and having a community of people going through the same experience and uh, and all having all their companies take flight. And and a lot of those a lot of those uh, other founders from from our class or you know, the classes around when we when we are when we did Y Combinator are some of my best friends today. And I mean, did you get a lot of support from uh, friends and family at the time for the idea like do people say yeah this is a this is a great idea or, or was there was there pushback I think my parents were like oh here's another Drew project <laughs> like God help us um, and my dad was like well, are you sure because I, I dropped out of my I was an MIT I was going to be supposed to get my master's but I dropped out uh, I finished my bachelor's degree but I dropped out um, so I think my parents were a little bit concerned about stability, but otherwise this was not, I had been doing startup things for a while. Um, you know, friends, investors, I think everybody, the feedback from investors was like, this is, uh, this market is a graveyard. These cloud storage companies are commodities and pretty terrible and, and none of them have succeeded. You're going to get killed by Microsoft and Yahoo and <laughs> Google and all the competitors. And frankly, I was like, yeah, that's probably what's going to happen. But God, I really just hate carrying around a thumb drive. And like, <laughs> like I know you, these investors are like, yeah, there's all these c competitors, but like, do you use any of these products? And they're like, no. I'm like, isn't that interesting? So, um, so it, it was sort of both obvious pain points uh, and just a lot of room for improvement in the experience and a really challenging competitive and economic environment. Um, and then, but there were a couple... Uh, tidal waves behind us that we couldn't even really recognize at the time. And one was the cloud, the rise of the cloud and Amazon Web Services that launched in 2006. Um, so that allowed us to get started with a credit card where I think a lot of the previous generation of company, I, I'd always have the, I had the last generation of, of, of storage entrepreneurs or whatever, they would be like, well, back in my day, a terabyte cost a million dollars and, you know, fit into an entire rack and things like that. So we didn't have, it made us a lot, a lot easier for us to, to get started. And then so that was one tidal wave, and the second was mobile. Like this was the iPhone had just been announced yeah. uh, when we incorporated the company. So, 
Um, and that, that made Dropbox from a real, or that made our problem space from kind of a relatively niche thing of people who have like a laptop and a PC or something to then, if you have an iPhone and you have a Windows PC, like suddenly you have a, you have an issue with getting your stuff wherever you need it. Yeah. I mean, jumping forward a couple of years, one of the other things that I, when I was reading through the history that I remembered actually writing about at the time, I think around 2009 was Steve Jobs basically saying that Dropbox would be a, a feature or, or, <laughs> or like basically we're going to launch something that's going to crush you so you should sell to us or give up or whatever. I mean, can you can you talk about, about that? Because again, you would have been 25, 26, like... Yeah, a conversation like that from someone like Steve Jobs could not have been an easy thing to basically say. No, I'm carrying on, thanks. Yeah, it was interesting because I had uh, a lot of friends who had had encounters with Steve, and they fell into two pretty distinct buckets. Like either you got a very charming Steve or, or very not charming, not nice Steve. Um, so you know, we had uh, uh, we didn't know what we were going to get, and, and it was a little of both. So when w we came down to Cupertino and um, so went into the he boardroom. invited you in. He invited so yeah. So we had we had been talking to different. Or there had been outreach from different folks at Apple, uh, over over the prior year or something, and then uh, and then there was a request that Steve would like to meet you, <laughs> and so it was pretty intimidating. Um, but I got in our zip car and drove down drove down to Cupertino and went into the boardroom. And uh, he actually, he started out very graciously. He's like, you know, you guys have built a great product. He called it product initially. But I'm like, all right, Steve called our product great. All right, check. Yeah. Bucket list. Um, so that was great. And then he's talked about all the advantages or the great things about Apple being kind of a, run like a startup with infinite resources and the benefits of potentially joining forces. Um, but, you know, Arash, my co-founder and I were enjoying building uh, Dropbox and they're because of that, because of um, the fact that we're really growing quickly, and and the fact that Dropbox has to be kind of cross-platform by nature, um, we didn't think the timing was right for something like that. So, um, but yeah, telling Steve, uh, you know, we we love to love to work, find a way to work with you, really in any capacity. But you know, we're we're really we think the right move for us is to continue building this as an independent company for now. I'm sure you understand. Well, um, yeah, <laughs> and then he then it got a little frosty. Um, yeah. But you know, I think so. Is in I, I didn't want to make him upset. Actually, I just wanted him to really just do whatever he was doing before and kind of stay off his radar. Um, but yeah, that kicked off a period of pretty intense competition. Mm. So when you left Cupertino, you get back in the zip car, uh, zip car. Um, you put your seatbelt on and you look at each other. What what went through your head? What was the first thing that came out? Do you think? Can you remember? And I'm asking a pretty deep question yeah. for a long time ago, but I think we were. I mean, we we're like that was a pretty cool experience. I mean, the the formal part of it, the the kind of business part of it, was over in like ten minutes. But Steve stuck around for another you know, forty five minutes or something, just talking to us about. Or we yeah, we asked him a bunch of questions about, you know, why why do you come back to Apple and why Cupertino and things like that. So there's. Um, there was more of a relational conversation after that. I mean, that was really the only time I met him um, mm -hmm. before he died. But, uh, but it, so I think we were, the, to answer the question, I think we were like, wow, this is pretty cool. Um, and then I think we're like, oh man, <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. about to get. Because uh, then we got mobile me and then that became iCloud and, yep. you know. And well, I mean, it was more, yeah, the, the real shot across the bow was in, I think, 2011 when 
Steve literally was on stage at, uh, saying like, you know, things like saving files on your hard drive or in your Dropbox or Archaic and iCloud is much better. And so he's like calling us out by name. So he named, he named yeah, your Dropbox. Um, in the keynote. And so we're like, you know, and at this point we have like a 30 person team. So I'm like, everybody's like, right hey, now what, Drew? You know, and I'm like, I don't know. Let's do more things faster. And we had sort of a comical, comically, you know, young founder type response to it. But yeah, it kicked off um, a pretty intense. I mean, and Apple was just one of the companies, obviously, Google, Microsoft, yeah. everyone um, was coming into the space. Well, let me bring you forward then to 2012. Um, another date that I think is interesting, you opened in Dublin um, or announced you opened in Dublin. I wasn't 100% sure exactly which, which, but it's like, you know, pretty much 10 years ago, like to the month or to the to the week or something that that, that happened. Um, so what what how did that feel at the time and looking back on it is there anything that you that you would have done differently were you to be doing that now uh, and or similarly is there something that you were like that was absolutely the right decision and I'm glad we made that decision at the time yeah it's it's been great yeah as, as you're saying we're coming up on 10 years in Dublin um, I think it was another reflection of, of um, Dropbox is a really global company and, and and in a lot of ways it always had been because people the way Dropbox spread or the way we, we grew was by people telling other people about the product or by sharing. And so that crossed um, international boundaries pretty naturally. So we found ourselves with the majority, vast majority of our users outside the U.S., um, even in the early days. Um, so, I mean, as far as going to Dublin is a lot of fun. I mean, my, my grandmother was Irish, and, um, and then Dublin's been a great tech hub for... Uh, a lot of the a lot of other companies in the sector, and so there's a really great workforce and talent that's available. So we were able to kind of build on uh, on a foundation that already existed, and, and it's been a it's been a great experience. Mm -hmm. It's really helped with our expansion in Europe and beyond. So one thing I'm interested in, um, if you weren't running a company like well, not even just Dropbox, if you weren't running a tech company, like what do you think you'd be doing? Like were you a, were you a techie <laughs> kid? Was this always the plan, or were you like? one of these people is like, I'm going to be a vet or I'm going to be a teacher or I'm going to be an astronaut. And how did, how did that come about? Oh, I know. I was definitely on the nerd path very early. I like, I was lucky. My, my dad had a PC junior in our living room, uh, when I was a little kid and, you know, I'm like glowing screen, lots of buttons. What's not to love. Um, and so I started by playing computer games and then I, uh, learned to program, uh, because I wanted to make my own computer games. And so my dad taught me my f first few lines of code when I was really, really little. What was your favorite game as a kid? Uh, as a kid, it would have been, uh, I mean, a lot of these adventure games, like the Sierra Online games, King's Quest, like yeah. things like that, in the very, very early days. Um, but I thought that was going to be my career. I thought I was going to make computer games. And then um, and you know, that I got my first... my. I didn't have programming on my resume, which was a bit of a challenge. And I was like babysitting as a you know, kid in middle school. Um, and I got my first programming job by, I was a beta tester for this, what we would now call like a massively multiplayer online game. So the developers were working on it, but pretty. But uh, I found all these security vulnerabilities in the game. So I, uh, <laughs> I, I was sending the developers messages from themselves and, you know, shooting everybody the lightning bolts in the game and then I emailed the developers I'm like hey you guys got to fix these things and they're like do you want a job and I'm like I am I can work part-time and remotely 
uh, is it okay if my dad signs all the paperwork? But yeah, no, I knew I got a very early introduction to to programming and startups. Are you still a gamer? I, I still am, yeah. What, what's your current game of choice? I'm kind of all over the place. I've, uh, I mean, a lot of the real-time strategy games, the, the, the StarCraft series, of course, um, the various shooters, the PUBG. Uh, but yeah, that's that was like definitely... Um, my path into or the, the gaming and programming went hand in hand. Mm. Um, what do you? I mean, this is a, a real leap in dates. Where do you see yourself at sixty? Do you think? Do you have a, a grand plan for like <laughs> I'm going to do this for all these years? I'm going to change the world, and then I'm going to do that. Like, is there a that? Uh. I've so it's a good question. Um, I think I'm gonna be doing Dropbox for the foreseeable future, um, and I just love the process of building things and and having them reach lots of people and looking over someone's shoulder in Starbucks to see if the little Dropbox icon is on their laptop. Do you ever tap like them on that. the shoulder when it isn't and say, <laughs> "Hey, I noticed you're using Google Drive," because <laughs> I would. <laughs> um, well, maybe some emails get sent. Like, come on, guys, we got it. You know, keep it up. Um, but I love that, and I think uh, you know, TechCon. It's I've been able to see tech kind of go through a few cycles now, where it was sort of the solution to all the world's problems, and then it's the cause of the world's pro- all the world's problems, and the right answer probably is and always has been, always will be somewhere in between. Um, but the leverage you can get um, from just or there are very few. Um, areas where you can sort of start with an idea or take something from nothing and then impact millions of people. Um, and then this is like considered relatively ordinary. Like our, our parents didn't, couldn't do that, right? Like business has been around for a long time, but the leverage you get with technology is unprecedented. And I think um, uh, the world has a lot of challenges and I think we need that like technology is probably going to be a big part of the solution. Or uh, And so I think the, Leverage you get from the platform. I just love the craft of, of building things and and running running the company. So, um, I mean, I did, that, I did have to do a little bit of soul searching along the way after we were sort of. I was like, we got all the kind of merit badges and numbers we needed as a startup, and then it's like, now what? Um, but I thought I felt really fortunate both to be in technology and to, ha- to be able to paint on this kind of canvas that that gets bigger and bigger as as we have more resources. Um, and then the craft of being a great CEO. I mean, fortunately, this is a line of work where, um, you know, unlike in other, there's some fields like, you know, being an athlete or playing chess or doing math or something where you might peak relatively young. Um, but in terms of building things or, uh, running companies, like you can be, you know, you can, you can be doing that for decades and still feel like, um, Either what you don't know is much larger than what you know, and then even look at Steve, right? He was, you know, in his prime towards uh, uh, towards the end of his career or as, before he died. Yeah, I hear music's a big part of your life too, and it was a big part of Steve Steve's life. But I do hear you play the guitar, which made, yeah. as a drummer made me very excited. <laughs> um, I wonder, like, how how important is 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 music to to you both? You know, privately as a way to relax. Can you can you incorporate it in the workspace? Like, if it, from what I've heard, music is a is, is a big deal. Yeah, to you. yeah, kind of all of the above. I mean, both in my personal life and just have loved music since I was a kid. 
Um, and then a, a lot of crossover with um, my professional life. And I, I think it's important to develop both halves of your brain, you know, because I got plenty of training in, uh, as a computer science student and, and other things in kind of the more mechanical types of uh, thinking. But then there's a whole intuitive and design and you know, artistic or creative realm uh, on the other side. And so I think it's been, uh, or music, exploring music, I wouldn't call myself like a wonderful musician, but you know, having an outlet like that, um, I think it's a, uh, it can be really complementary to the other kinds of learning. Do you ever take the team to a gig or take your time I, to work? Sure, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, I've, I've yeah, we've definitely gone, taken, I've definitely taken my team to different, you know, festivals and things like that. I've had my, I have a, a cover band called Angry Flannel, which has been around even longer than Dropbox. We're still together. Angry Flannel. Angry Flannel, Boston's premier 90s cover band, as judged by ourselves. And and who is the most popular <laughs> group to cover? Because uh, I am going to look yeah. this up as soon as we leave the studio. Sure. I, I think I, there was a time where I didn't, I, my my credit card expired on this, so I think the website's down. I gotta like put it back up. But mm. uh, it's, otherwise, angry, angryflannel.com. <laughs> I'm still the I, I'm still the the webmaster. Uh, but um, yeah, we'd play all the grunge stuff. So the you know, uh, Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, Nirvana, to uh, like the Weezer, Sublime, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, so and it's fine. We're still we met on Craigslist. We still play together. We I, I got married like six months ago. So we, oh, we, congratulations. We got a the, a very late night slot one night in, at the wedding to play together. But it's a lot of fun. So you got to play guitar at your own wedding. Yeah, it's very cliche. Oh, no, it's not. <laughs> when I got married, I was in charge of three things: showing up, saying the right name at the altar and doing the music through the PA, but I wasn't allowed to play my drum kit at the wedding because everyone <laughs> would leave. So I'm I'm genuinely quite envious. It was fun. It was, I, we had a blast. Yeah, I bet. Um, so we've got about another 10 minutes or so, uh, eight minutes. What I'm curious, what keeps you awake at night? Uh, I mean, so, you know, in, in playing the game, I think just thinking about are we placing the right bets and uh, are we making the our products really great, things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we have been on a journey of building a great company and, and I think we, uh, we're fortunate to have a lot of early success with, with the product, but I think at the same time success came pretty quickly or maybe a little too quickly. And so I think we spent a lot of, we had a lot of catching up to do over time as we scaled the company or in a lot of ways. I mean, I still say this to some extent. I'm like, Dropbox sometimes feels like a 3,000-person company with the processes of a 300-person startup. And so I think we've been on a journey of you know, operational excellence and fiscal discipline and, and, and grown-up things like that, especially as we've become a public company. Um, and then, but that said, I think we, now my time is uh, much more focused on longer-range innovation and building kind of the next act. Um, and I think this environment where the way we the way we work has totally changed um, and kind of reset everything. And the um, uh, in a world where it's a challenging mac macroeconomic environment, um, it's a it's a good opportunity to kind of to think about all right. Well, how do we invest for the future? And, and I think we, in a lot of ways, we took a lot of our medicine a few years ago, and unfortunately, haven't seen some of the kinds of dislocations we've seen elsewhere. But I think it's a very creative 
I mean, and, and then and all these things uh, are obviously challenges too, right? The, running the company through the pandemic was difficult. Managing through a downturn is difficult. Um, but trying to find the silver lining of all these things is maybe how I'd summarize it, which is um, the pandemic was obviously a disaster on so many levels, but then also created this opportunity to fundamentally redesign the nature of work. And um, as we think about, you know, when you really zoom out, we're like, okay, yeah, and, and this was the period when we went from working from offices to working in screens, like that, like finishing that transition, like work is almost entirely digital now. And now that you see the rise of machine learning and AI and computers that can see and read and write and talk and do all kinds of things that, that we wouldn't quite have predicted not too long ago. I, I mean, I just think it's a really exciting time to be building. And who do you turn to for advice? You know, we talked about the wiring money question, yeah. you know, back in the day, but if something equivalent happens today, like who's your first, who do you call first? Yeah, it's a pretty wide, I'd say I'd have like a pretty wide variety um, or maybe more breadth than depth. So there's certainly other entrepreneurs um, that are going through similar things. Um, honestly, I get, I probably learned the most from reading. Uh, that's That's like the most helpful thing to me which is to get perspective. So, um, you know, I love reading about you know, Peter Drucker's work. He had Peter Drucker coined the, the phrase knowledge work in 1959. And I think you can learn a lot. I, I just really enjoy the sort of the study of excellence across different disciplines. And I think because it's easy to look at what tech companies do to be great tech companies, but then I think you can learn a lot once you look at business outside of your sector. And then when you zoom out from business, it's like, you know, how do governments solve problems? How do the military solve problems? How does how do great sports teams solve problems? I think there's a lot to learn from that. So I'd, I'd say it's a pretty wide variety of, um, of different inputs. Were you reading on the flight over? Yeah. What were you reading? <laughs> it's okay. If I was it's... reading, yeah, I was reading this, I, I was reading this book that was talking about the, about military history, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, where uh, uh, this Prussian general in the 18th century was has spent 25 years of his life trying to write a book about what his experience was like in war and like what is war and why is it difficult. Um, and, and the book's called Art of Action um, by Stephen Bungay. And I, I'm trying to remember where I heard where it was recommended, but basically the thesis of the book is that we can learn a lot from or the coordination challenges and some of the overwhelm and friction that we uh, feel in modern work and just with the change and the complexity and the uncertainty um, that really characterized the environment. Uh, or that's what they use a lot of similar language to describe what made uh, war difficult. I mean, obviously, you know, there there are parallels. There are obviously extremely different circumstances, but um, the for this, this whole element of friction or just that things that should be easy to do are actually quite hard in wartime and then things that are complex feel impossible to do because of all this complexity and uncertainty and so there are some interesting like and then there were these different over the you know, following hundreds of years there are a lot of lessons learned about how do you deal with complexity and uncertainty and coordinate people in that environment and that there's probably a lot that businesses can learn about how do you how do you run a big how do you run a business effectively in a difficult environment um, there's a lot you can learn from how you run from from military uh, challenges or how they solve some of the coordination problems there. Well, it's been fascinating to hear. I mean, in the space of 
30, 40 minutes to talk about Prussian generals, business <laughs> management, pandemic, starting a company, cashing checks, Steve Jobs, everything else we've talked about. It's been a fascinating uh, time. And thank you so much for, for coming in. Um, just play us out with like what's what should we look out for at Dropbox next? What's the next big thing? Well, we're really excited about building towards the next generation of the experience. And we see that... Um, people have a lot of fundamental challenges today around organizing their stuff. And, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of the same problem I started with. My stuff is every, everywhere, can't find it. Uh, back then, that meant my files are on these different devices, different operating systems that don't talk to each other. Uh, and the solution looked like file syncing, but um, those 100 files on your desktop are now 100 tabs in your browser, right? If I were to start the company again, uh, that's probably where I'd go. Like now our stuff's in, it's still, we still have plenty of files, but we also have all these cloud tools um, but there's kind of this missing organizing layer where things that should be easy, in many cases, in many cases were were much easier 20 years ago. Like searching for your stuff uh, are much harder because like 20 years ago, you search, you want to find something, you search your hard drive, and it's it's there, or it's not. But you had one search box. Um, but now you have like 10 search boxes that each search 10 percent of your stuff, and every year you get another one. Um, so the fragmentation of that experience uh, causes a lot of pain. So. We're really excited about things that like we bought a company called Command E that does universal search last year and making big investments there. Um, and we see a big opportunity for Dropbox to, to evolve to organize all of your cloud content um, beyond just syncing your files and, and build a really intelligent experience that leverages a lot of the renaissance we've been seeing in machine learning and, and deep learning. Well, Drew, thanks again for, for joining us today on Out of Office. It's been a real pleasure. Um, hope to see you back in the UK again soon and for the next 15 years of Dropbox and rock and roll. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. That was my chat with Drew Houston, the CEO of Dropbox. I don't mind saying that's one of the more diverse conversations I've had with a CEO in recent years. And thank you to Malika for trusting me with Out of Office this week to record it for you. If you've got any feedback for me, please fire me a tweet. I'm on at Nate Langson. And remember to do check out the other episodes of Out of Office. The show's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and of course, on Bloomberg.com and the Bloomberg Terminal. This episode was produced by Mohamed Farouk and Yang Yang. I'm Nate Langson, and thank you for listening. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.